I was so happy to have the opportunity to talk to the amazing Dr. Somi. She has been practicing as a board-certified OBGYN physician and a surgeon for more than 10 years and specializes in aspects of every stage of a woman's life, menopause, sexual medicine, general gynecology, ultrasound, etc. She's also the founder of HerMD, an innovative chain of wellness centers for women's reproductive health, their sexual health, and also their aesthetic satisfaction. So I had the opportunity to talk to her in the middle of COVID-19, her from her office in Cincinnati and me from my home. Uh, So forgive any of the sound bumps that you might experience and please enjoy the radical view of what we might do in women's health in the coming years. So, uh, I am so happy to meet you. I, Michelle, who is on our team, found you, or you found her, and she was like, oh, you're going to love this company. They, they're all about inner and outer beauty. They're all about the inner life meeting the outer life, which is totally your thing, and they have this box in women's health. Went on and looked at your bio, and I was like, oh, yeah, she's a professor. She's a clinician. She's an entrepreneur. Now she seems to be a franchisee, which is much bigger story than just <laughs> practice. So I, um, I'm really curious about uh, that journey as a as a a person interested in women's health. How that evolved for you? Everyone asks me that. They're like, "How do you end up uh, being raised the way you were?" You know, my parents were immigrants and end up being this face for sexual health care in a culture where we didn't talk about it at home, right? Basically, it was like sex, no. Um, And that was it, end of discussion. So uh, in my life, what happened to me is, you know, I'm going to be 45 very shortly. And um, uh, my mother got very ill when she was 45 years old and had presented to the hospital with chest pain and shortness of breath and left arm pain. And my grandmother and aunt had passed away from um, heart attacks and her doctors just wouldn't listen to her. And I was pre-med at the time and I could not believe that no one was taking her seriously. She had an abnormal EKG. They told her just stop drinking so much caffeine or just relax, honey. Maybe the kids are stressing you out so much. So six weeks in and out of hospitals and she ends up with emergent quadruple bypass surgery. They discover she has the widow maker lesion, right? Which kills a lot of patients who end up having a heart attack if it's not discovered and ended up surviving. And she's alive to this day. And I remember a light going off saying, something's not right here. Something's wrong. If it were my father, he would have been paid attention to. They nearly killed her because they didn't listen to her at the age of 45. Mm. And at that point, I decided I was going to be an advocate for women. I didn't know quite where my path was going to lead. Um, went into OBGYN, was obsessed with surgery and delivering babies and loved that journey with women. But as an OBGYN, as you're hearing these stories of women describing themselves as broken um, or not deserving their spouses or not feeling like themselves and just lost and looking for hope when they are complaining to you about no sex drive or sexual pain or losing any type of arousal, and you watch your mentors telling them things like, well, women are born to bleed, breed, and die, or I can't get my wife interested. How could I help you? Someone actually said that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, And these are the physicians who are supposed to be, you know, teaching me and, and leading the charge. And I'm, you know, due to insurance companies seeing 50 patients a day, Um, And it's like drive through pap smears, right? So how do you have this intimate discussion with someone and gain their trust and offer any type of advice? And so 40 was creeping on me. And I said, I've got to stay true to my promise to my mother and to myself. And there's going to be no being a warrior in this current medical system. And I went and got some intensive training in sexual health care and on a wing and a prayer, bought a building opened a practice, which in the last five and a half years has grown to over 7,000 patients. Um, And that just proves how much of a need there is for sexual health care in this country for women. And that's how I arrived at opening her MD. There's so many things in what you're talking about this in unwillingness to listen to what a patient is actually saying goes across men and women. Like often I have a friend, Robin Farmian, who wrote a book called the patient as CEO, where you're like, 
I'm taking back my power and I'm going to control my care and control the narrative. And, um, and I, so, so she, she spoke to that, but, but across the country, um, this idea of like not being able to speak uh, to the medical profession because they don't have the time or they're not interested and it gets worse with gender and it gets worse with race. It gets worse if you don't speak English. They're all of these bias points. And so the idea of saying, I'm going to respect you as an individual and what you have to say is a, somewhat of a revolutionary point, regardless of whether it's in women's care, you know, I, I feel like for doctors. Um, yeah, the gender bias is huge. It's not limited to male providers. It's female providers. Wow. It's deep rooted in the psychology. Yeah, no, if you think about Freud's uh, word hysteria, where does hysterectomy come from? It has nothing to do with hysteria. The Latin root for uterus is mitra. It has nothing, there's nothing else called his, hysteria or hysterectomy. Um, and there was a study done where they looked at 60 or 70 medical charts from a British hospital and all these women had been described as hysterical and nearly 70% of them actually had either mental health or neurologic disorders. And so it's a deep rooted bias against women that even female providers are taught through medical school and through residency. Um, you combine that with the fact that women are underrepresented in three out of every four major medical studies, you have this norm described in medical care as a male patient, and specifically a Caucasian uh, male patient. So there's so much bias there. When you look at pharmaceutical dollars, um, in 2018, a Forbes article said from head to toe, women received 4% of all healthcare funding that was available. Oh, come on. The male prop? No, I'm dead serious. That's breasts and ovaries and uterus and men, the prostate size of the walnut received 2%, which we receive more, but head to toe. Um, females are not executives uh, or sit on boards. If you look at the percentages, they're minimal compared to men, but yet we outnumber them three to one in the workforce. And so for not being given the time and attention of providers, we're not be being given the research dollars, we're not being given a listening ear, then how are women going to speak up? My patients became the invisible patients. When you, when you started her, we'll talk about her MD in a minute, but just to finish this point, you'd have on your homepage, this description of the clinical trial gap, basically. Right. It's gap in data. Yes. So are you intending or are you already partnering with institutions or people who are doing clinical studies to help close that gap? Are you among your 7,000 patients, will they enroll so that at least some of the studies are, um, being more equitably designed? Yes, so absolutely. We already presented some data last year. Our poster was presented at uh, the North American Menopause Society about lasers and um, a specific condition called lichen sclerosis. Hmm. I've been contacted by a few pharmaceutical organizations about sexual health care, and they want to collect data in our office because they want to study our algorithms of care and what we're doing in our office to treat patients to help other providers deliver that type of care to their patients as well. The great limiting step for someone like me is that I don't have a lot of funding. Hospital systems are given research grants. And for someone like me who owns her own practice, it takes a lot to get these clinical trials off the ground. But absolutely, now going into our sixth year, we're going to be offering that. And we've been blessed that we are uh, friends with local media and are able to be given the appropriate time and attention so we can recruit people for our clinical trials. Well, let's take a pause then and actually tell me about her MD and what your vision is for it. Because if I'm reading it right, it sounds like it won't just be your local practice, but it'll be something that would be available all over the country. And if that methodology of, of you know, treating women and listening to women and then partnering for clinical trials, it could actually really move the needle. So can you tell me, tell us about her MD? What's its mission? So her MD is all about empowering women um, to take care of their sexual health care, to educate them and to have uh, their health care uh, be the, take care of the total person, both inside and out. We want to help them feel healthy and beautiful. And I don't want to limit this care to Cincinnati. When we grew to 7,000 patients and I had patients flying in from Canada and Seattle and Washington, D.C. and driving from Florida, I knew we were on to something. 
due to insurance uh, reimbursements, which are very low for sexual health care providers, they just don't uh, give any time or attention to women's sexual health care. Uh, a lot of providers like myself who are experts in the field are limited to concierge practice practices or cash per service or fee for service. Uh, a lot of women just can't afford it. They have a lot of other things to pay for. And you know, women will put themselves behind everything else. Mm. And so the promise I had made right to my mother and to myself was being an advocate for all women. And the last thing I wanted to do was be yet another barrier to women's health care, right? By cost. And so our decision was to take nearly every type of insurance, which allowed my patient from Florida to drive two days because we took her military insurance. And mm. she had had a stroke and was struggling with low libido. And her doctors told her, listen, you survived, you know, be thankful for that. If your libido, it doesn't matter. And she came to me and she wept because she said, I drove, I found you on the website. I drove two days and I knew you would have an answer for me. And I've been in touch with her and she's been able to have a normal sexual health life and her marriage is back to baseline. And she's so happy. Um, so our idea was to help physicians who really wanted to practice really good sexual health care and help them do this within a insurance model. And the way we've done that is we've partnered with opening a full-blown medical spa in my practice, which I own, which brings in 65% of the cash to the practice, which then allows all the providers to spend 20, 40, 60 minutes with patients on the medical side mm -hmm. because we're not so cash poor on the medical side. And it's a win-win situation for everyone. I like the idea that your Botox is subsidizing the healthcare for women who are suffering. And can't afford it. <laughs> it's like a little bit of a Robin Hood it's not situation. A... <laughs> it is, but it's not because, you know, in a concierge type practice, which is great for the women who can afford it, right? You get the time and attention and you can contact your doctor, but 90% of my patients couldn't afford that. Right. So for us, the women who were going to get Botox anyway, and cool sculpting and lasers, they can choose where to spend their money. And it's not just money that they get to belong to the practice. They're getting something back for their hard-earned dollars. And that, and that in turn feeds the medical practice. Correct. So when you're and working, her MD, our when you're working with a local licensed physician or an OB in another place, you're giving them the business model and the tools to do what you've done. Right. Are you also giving them um, clinical uh, techniques and interview techniques and philosophy, or is it primarily the business model behind it? It's everything. Yeah. So they have help with insurance uh, credentialing. They have help with, we are also a full-blown surgical center and imaging center. They get discounts on all of the equipment that they elect to buy. We've also developed detailed algorithms of care because as providers go to these conferences and they learn about sexual health, how do you take that data and then take care of patients, right? That's what they care about. How do I take care of a patient? We have set up all of our algorithms of care and then staff training. Everyone who comes to our office states that they feel like we know every single patient and we do. And that's because of staff training, um, all of the media kits and the marketing and how do you hold educational events that are free to patients and stand behind your philosophy, right? Which is truly to educate and empower. Um, and all of that is offered. So, and then all of the business acumen as well. So we have a chief strategy officer who's a fellow wildcat. I just found that out tonight. And um, she helps with all of that. And, you know, really we got coveted because just this fall, we got everything together and started going to our first conferences and had about 70 applicants and started interviewing people because we also have to make sure it's the right fit. Right. And, um, and then COVID happened. So we, during this slower time, have launched a podcast and a sexual health summit and, so, and been doing a lot on social media and reaching out. And we have two new um, applications that just have come in this week. So People are very interested um, in opening a center, and it's nice because we have a proven business model. I, I love that. I'm also I find that across all, a lot of industries that people are basically using this time to plant the to prepare the soil, 
because our attention is very distracted with economics and politics and we have some major problems in the culture, but that doesn't mean our health issues are going away. And so I love the idea that you're setting the framework and letting people know what you're about and that when the time is right, it'll be perfect. Um, it'll be, they'll be ready to move with you. Um, I do have some, I do have a couple of questions um, on the med spa healthcare side, because I found like it, particularly in Northern California, where I lived for a long time, that there was sort of um, a bias, like there's a little struggle between the people who are like doulas, midwives, gynecologists, who thought that there was something about the med spa work that was less than, uh, that was uh, they had like a little moral judgment about it, particularly things mm-hmm. around like vaginal tightening and all of that kind of stuff that was going on. Um, so how do you reconcile like, or how do you tell when a patient approaches you and patients are adults so they can decide what they want to decide, but when they're approaching you from self-love and when they're approaching you from self-improvement and like, I'm not good enough in, it's such a, it's such a tricky spot with women. No, Absolutely. And for me, um, in this space, being a female physician and wanting to make sure that I was understood as a surgeon and a researcher and their gynecologist, I am the medical director at the medical spa and taught this philosophy of the medical spa supports our practice, introduced my medical team to the aesthetic team. There was not going to be, this is the med spa and this is the medical team, no one's better, no one's worse. Neither side can survive without each other. And really allowed the medical side and all of the girls to get treatments um, and to get to experience what they feel. We even did these empowerment photos of my medical team and they underwent this transformation and we have them hanging all over the office. And it was such an eye-opening moment for everybody. It just clicked. And everyone realizes we have a 90% crossover from the medical side to the spa because of this philosophy and this mutual respect. We have cancer patients who come in who are cachectic and sickly and they don't feel well and they want to come in and they want to get filler because they want to look good for those family photos. And we are able to treat those patients and it's so fulfilling So in our office, there's no judgment from any of the providers, but there's also absolutely no high pressure. If a patient wants to come in on the medical side and that's all they want to do, that's a beautiful thing. And if they want to come to the spa, that's wonderful. They're welcome to that side of the practice. But the team, and there's team members that go to both sides of the practice. For example, our nurse practitioner, trained in sexual health, trained in menopause, and then goes to the med spa and she does Botox and filler. And her patients love her for that. Um, so it's been a really, really nice marriage, um, in our, uh, practice, but we've done it very well. Um, and I think that's very well received. And then my patients will ask me, Dr. Spade, have you done anything recently? And of course I'll share. I'm like, yeah, I have Botox. And they're like, but wait, you look natural. And I said, well, that's the way I've chosen to do it. You know, everyone's different and that's the way I like it. And so sometimes they'll go over and they're like, Donna, can you do what you did to Dr. Javade to me? Um, so, you know, I've had a couple patients though who've called me out on it and said, Dr. Javade, you're all about empowering women and accepting them for who they are. How do you stand behind having this cosmetic space in your practice? Um, and when I explained to them what the philosophy is about, allowing women to feel better about whatever is bothering them, not me, not you, Um, And it truly allows us to function and to be able to deliver the type of care that we do. She was okay with it. But I get asked a question all the time. Yeah, I think there's a sovereignty question and trusting women that their decisions are their decisions and also being careful that it's not acculturation. But I will say it's a pretty revolutionary idea to include for quality of life for a post-cancer patient or anyone, frankly, that their libido is intact and they feel beautiful. You know, that's uh, like, why not? You're supposed to like live through these conditions and, and treatments. And then you're just accept that you're going to live a marginalized or less optimal life. I don't agree with that at all. So I'm glad that you're out there doing it. What about, um, what about the, so I've, let me pause. So I've been really interested in, the life cycle of women, like the archetypes of that run over the, a woman's life cycle. 
And, it, you know, like you were saying that horrible thing about breeding and dying, like there, the whole archetype of maiden matron crone was you're, you're, you've bled and you're ready to bear a child. You've born a child. You can no longer bear a child. That was it. That was the whole archetype of the ages of women. So we've been going around the country for the last couple of years doing these women's circles and three generations will show up. And what's become clear is there's a, even in girlhood, like zero to menses or the zeros to menarche, that girls are already being groomed for how to be in their sexual power, in their pleasure, in their sovereignty, in their joy or not. Like you can't just turn someone on at 14 and be like, you should know what you want and know how to say no and all of that stuff. And then all kinds of new questions in the teenage years, uh, sexual activation until reproductive intent, all kinds of new technologies and reproductive intent. And then basically after menopause, there was a big freaking cliff, like 50 to 95, nothing. And so we started talking to women about this parsing of those stages like, and it kind of comes 50 to 65 in that range, 65 to 75, and then sort of 75, late 70s to 80s had, um, have very different needs, but I don't see much conversation past the uh, initial drama stages of menopause. So would you speak a little bit to, you know, what you're inquiring about or learning for women who are 60 and over? Yeah, so it's really nice. You know, um, about 15 years ago came out that WHI study, that Women's Health Initiative, that basically said hormones were poison and we needed to use hormones for the shortest amount of time and the shortest duration because women were going to get demented and they were going to die of heart attacks and strokes and they were going to get all types of cancers. And you remember, hormones are vital for mentation and mood and sexual function and vaginal health and pelvic floor health and just overall well-being, and also to prevent, you know, osteoporosis. And here we were as physicians yanking this fountain of youth away from women mm. because of this trial that didn't adequately study women. It basically took women who were 25 to 29 years out of menopause who had never been on hormones and who had already had multiple medical problems and put them on hormones. And they were not natural hormones. They were oral hormones. They were um, conjugated, which is the exact opposite of bioidentical. And when you look at the data and you look at transdermal hormone therapy, which is, you know, through the skin and you look at bioidentical, you realize it's much less risky and it actually protects the heart and protects the brain and protects the bones. So now um, at the latest um, conferences, the party line is until 65, unless women have a glaring reason they can't be on hormones, you can safely continue hormones if the patient desires. And so that was a huge market change. And then just this past fall, you know, when I was a professor at the university and I was putting my patients on testosterone, a lot of my colleagues are like, what are you doing? That's a male hormone. Well, no, it's actually produced in the ovary. We can measure female levels. Um, it's needed for sexual function. And those of us who practice sexual health care knew this for many years and my peers wouldn't prescribe it. So when I was... Uh, off call or not there, my patients would have to wait for me. And just this past fall, a consensus statement came out stating that um, testosterone is indeed beneficial specifically for postmenopausal patients and needed for sexual function and helps with pain and arousal and desire. So for those of us that are knowledgeable and going to these conferences and getting the latest data my patients over 60 are on hormones. We are absolutely addressing their sexual health care and their menopausal needs, whether it's GSM, which is genitourinary symptoms of menopause, sexual disorders, hot flashes, insomnia. You know, women think they go through menopause, like you said, right at that transition, and then they're done, and then they're postmenopausal. There are women that are still symptomatic 20 years out. They deserve quality of life. They deserve treatment options. So my patients, as long as we've gone through a careful history, we talk to them about the expectations of their medications, they're getting treated. And a lot of my peers are now practicing medicine the same way. So it's changing slowly, but it's changing. But it's changing in a way because you are opening the conversation. 
That's it's not you have to live it the way your mother did or your grandmother did. It's not secret. It's not shameful. You don't have to have painful periods. You don't have to have pain on intercourse. You don't have to live sort of dried out until you're a hundred. And then um, there's a, the other piece that with the lengthening of life seems to be the relationship piece. Do you also provide, I saw something on your site about bring me your taboos or something like that. Bring me all the things that you desire. Let's, let's go there. Let's talk about it. Um, Right. Which brought up a whole bunch of other conversations around. It sounds like that, (laughs) not just like, uh, you know, I have a hormone problem. um, I want to look better, but it's also like the psychological or psycho spiritual emotional aspects of being in a sexual or intimate relationship. So many women with trauma all that kind of stuff. So there seems to be a, a mental health component in, in the, in the treatment. And then maybe even one step further, what I would call a collective cultural health component where we're unwinding cultural narratives. And uh, so I'm interested in that. Like how do you in, interweave the mental spiritual side into your treatment? So it's very interesting. Um, you know, they were looking at data from my office and seeing that our patients uh, tend to refill their prescriptions more than a lot of the other offices, specifically their medications that help increase desire. And it's interesting, you know, there's 26 medications for men and and two for women when you're talking about sexual Mm -hmm. dysfunction. And when you specifically are looking at desire, you're talking about hormonal issues and neurotransmitters in the brain, relationships, lifestyle. If a woman is exhausted because she's taking care of her children all day and working, she's not going to want to have sex no matter who's laying in her bed. And so there are so many facets of that. And so I recognized very early on, if I treated vaginal pain, for example, with a laser or a medication, but didn't address the desire or the relationship problem, then I was doing the patient a disservice. So I'm certainly not a sexual health uh, counselor, but what I have done is created this team in Cincinnati where we have a huge group of counselors that we send patients to. And so first step is both um, patient and partner, if they want, come to the office and they're welcome other than during COVID. Um, and they come in and I get to hear the story from both sides. And we talk about what's happening, how it affects both partners. Um, and we kind of give them a safe space where they can share dialogue because both partners are affected. A lot of women feel guilty. They feel isolation. They feel shame. They feel like they're not doing their duty. Um, mm-hmm. Things that have been programmed into their head. And they compare themselves to what's happening on TV or in a book they're reading um, or kind of what has been programmed into women all this time, right? And uh, a lot of the men feel rejected. They feel hurt. They don't feel desirable. Um, and some of the partners are very supportive, but they don't quite understand what's happening. And then, you know, we check their labs. We see what's going on. Are the hormones normal? And then we get them into counseling. And then if they need pelvic floor physical therapy. So sexual health care for women is complicated. It's multifaceted. There are so many layers involved. And providers who just think they're going to write a prescription in a five-minute visit in that classic model of healthcare we have going on are never going to succeed. They're never going to make a difference. Um, and that simply just has to change. Mm, I love that. This, the, and the hetero, if it's a heterosexual partnership for many men, the love languages, touch and sexuality are and, completely different. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm very interested also in your lateral collectivist thinking around how to run a business, like how to go and network out to other providers and create a system where it's not a dominance hierarchy, but it's a relationship of competence. And that's, that's pretty revolutionary in medicine. So keep doing that. Um, well, is there anything else that you would like us to talk about? We've talked about uh, inner and outer care, self-love, self-improvement, the relationship between medicine and uh, the, the conversation around the medical intervention, your beautiful business. We're so happy we were part of your box. It's very cool. Um, and I know that was uh, very awesome. We're going to be seeing you at NAMS if um, it's not COVIDed out in the fall. I think we are looking at booths right near each other. Um, so if someone wanted to see you, 
uh, from somewhere else in the country, can they telehealth with you or do they have to come to Cincinnati? They can telehealth with me. We have a team going. A lot of the telehealth rules and regulations have been relaxed during COVID. Um, but basically, our team checks to make sure it's okay with their insurance and it's okay with state laws because they're all different. Otherwise, like my patient from Florida and Washington, D.C. and Seattle, they have to see me once every 12 months. But the rest of the follow-up visits can all happen via telehealth and via insurance. And so you just hop on our website, hermdhealth.com. You click that button that says request a telehealth appointment and they're able to see me. And I did that all day today between patients because we have to have cleaning time going on because of COVID. And then I'll pop on a telehealth appointment as the requests come in. And it's great. I get to see patients from all over the place. And even when my patients are living, you know, elsewhere and quarantining elsewhere, they still can continue their care with me and the other providers in the office. And that's the other thing I think that's really changed during COVID is there was this resistance um, to telemedicine because a lot of women do require an exam, but a lot don't. And so that's been really nice. And teaching other physicians about that um, has been really um, rewarding as well and letting them know that you can have quality visits one-on-one and you don't have to be so reliant on that behavior of having to have, uh, you know, women come in, they can share. And a lot of women feel safer in their own homes, you know, discussing their most intimate thoughts and, and desires and, and their needs. So it's been really nice and open to whole another avenue for her MD. If you could have her MD be the ultimate success, if it could be anything, where would it, where would it go? What does it look like when it's grown up? I want, uh, we've done a study and we believe we need about 500 centers across the country. And I don't want it to make the news every time I say sexual health care or orgasm on TV, which I did do. Um, I don't want anyone to bat an eyelash. It, it, it shouldn't be a big deal. Male sexual health care, female sexual health care. It shouldn't matter. And I want to narrow this gender gap. I don't want there to be an eight and a half year delay in diagnosis when you compare men to women. I don't want women to have three visits for every one visit that a male patient has to have. Um, I want provider bias to be eliminated. So I have big goals and big, big dreams uh, for her MD. And I really believe it's going to come to fruition. Just watching location one busting at the seams um, and knowing these stories that we get to hear every day and we're humbled um, and so empowered by the fact that we get to take care of our patients and in advocating for them, they've become our biggest advocates. And by sharing their stories, they feel more powerful. And the word of mouth has been incredible. I saw so many new patients today and they were friends of existing patients who said, you know, you fixed my girlfriend's sex life. I'm, I'm coming to you. She said, you know, you could do this. Um, and that's been really nice. So that's my dream for when her MD is all grown up and that okay. we have the clinical trials and we have the funding. Big dreams. Highly measurable goals. And that's so exciting because you can point in that direction and go. I love that. The, oh, I'm just drawing a blank because I think I have menopausal aphasia. Um, oh, no, <laughs> no, there, let me sprinkle some estrogen no, on you please, like, <laughs> over zoom. That would be so great. Estrogen. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 when I, there's something on there, I'm just going to take a pause here to remember what it was. No, 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 no. Ah, I know self-centered stuff. I wanted to tell you. So we have been talking about restoring the blacked out triangle at the bottom of the body, the pelvic basin into whole body care um, for a while. And we're doing that with our skincare products and all of that stuff. But we encountered so much algorithmic bias when we tried to advertise. So you said orgasm on television or whatever in an interview, but I have that issue almost every single day on trying to advertise our products on Amazon trying to do it on Facebook, Instagram. They can't tell the difference between pornography and a woman's sexual health. And so we've actually formed a little bit of a union of six companies so far who are approaching these, uh, these companies to really begin to understand how the biases of the programmers have trained the algorithms with pre-existing gender bias. 
and that we need to unwind those as we move forward to normalize communication around sexual health and wellness. So um, we, uh, I could, yeah, I completely agree with you. We were just talking about that on our podcast because that is a huge limitation and that's uh, been problematic for us too, getting the word out there because there are so many triggers in what we do. And that was my biggest complaint was there's no difference in sexual health care and pornography. And that's in 2020, that's ridiculous. Thank Agreed. you. So we have uh, an ally. I think we're yes. in very many um, senses about our mission, uh, particularly the one about normalizing the dialogue and the other one about um, being able to ask for what you need across all of these concerns, you know, that it should never be embarrassing. Right. And I think what you talked about, about the life cycles of all of this, you know, I've started it with my own girls. Have you seen the show yet? Never have I ever about the young girl who's a sophomore and she it's written by Mindy Kaling and it's so well-written and growing up in my household, this would have, I would have never watched this with my parents. I mean, I was banned from watching Three's Company or Grease and it's about this 15-year-old, the sophomore, um, who is on a mission to lose her virginity. And, you know, nothing is off limits from a teenager's point of view. And it's very well written. And I watched it with my girls, um, 11 and uh, 13. And they were kind of giggly and squirmy at first. They know what I do for a living. I don't hide it. We, we talk about the correct terminology because I want them to be empowered and I want them to learn about sexual health care, not just from pregnancy or not contraception or not, you know, sexually transmitted disease or not the way sexual health care currently is taught in residency and medical school. But I want them to know about their body and their anatomy and that they can ask me questions. And I want them to be able to ask me about sex and not learn about it from their peers who don't know, you know, in the back of their bus ride home or by finding something on the internet. So we watched the whole series together. And, um, you know, I told my patients, you know, watch it first if you don't feel comfortable. And my girls were like, thank you, mom. Thank you for being watching this with us. Thank you for not making it weird. And, you know, we feel comfortable now. We can ask you whatever we want to ask you about. And there are days where I groan because there are questions I don't want to, you know, talk about as their mother. But then I take a step back and I'm thankful that they're able to have this conversation with me. And um, so I think things are starting to change. So you need to check that out um, because yeah. I think my whole other problem, yeah, is that there's no safe place for women, right? We have that um, moose head sex ed um, talk that's still happening. My daughter brought home this antiquated pamphlet <laughs> about sexual health care and I'm you mean crossing the, it out you know the uterus, and, the uterus diagram yes you have these beautiful illustrations right that's not what's happening in eighth grade let me tell you so we have the moose head and so I'm like crossing this out fixing it because there's so many things that are wrong in this um, pamphlet and of course I sign it, you know, Layla's mom and then parentheses, Dr. Javade, MD, you know, board certified OBGYN. So they wouldn't think I was just crazy, like, you know, fixing this, but from every facet of life, you, you hit it on, you know, the nail on the head, women are just not empowered and they're not, we're not given the correct education or safe place where we can answer questions. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, Comel uh, my team shared with me that she didn't know what her vulva was. And I started laughing and I said, um, it's amazing to me that women all know the anatomy of the penis and we know erectile dysfunction, what ED means, but no one knows their anatomy. A lot of women can't tell me uh, all of their anatomical parts. And so we spent a lot of time educating women about that because I feel like they can't communicate with their partners about pleasure or displeasure or elicit to me where their pain is. Today, I had a patient say to me, well, I have pain down there. I go, down where? Australia? Like, wh where's your pain? You know, <laughs> and was teasing her to like get her to calm down. I'm like, down where? She's like, well, you know, below the waist. And I was like, there are a lot of things <laughs> below your waist. Um, and so we have this technology in the office where we, um, I can shine a camera on um, to their anatomy and it goes up on a screen in a private room and I teach them what everything is. And then we also, you know, take a Q-tip and we figure out where the pain is coming from. 
on and themselves, their patients. So they're actually seeing their own. And that's amazing. Correct. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a vulva. Yeah. Puppet. I was at Ishwish. No, it's vulvoscopy. <laughs> the vulva puppet. Yes. As an educational <laughs> yes, tool. Yes, but no. as an educational tool, I approve. Yeah. However, to show it on a woman's individual anatomy so it becomes less abstract is so, and that you're using it as a teaching tool, not just as a diagnostic is amazing to me. I have, um, yeah, no, on the person, like I have three daughters and three sons and I never, you know, and sexuality was like my, I was so sexual when I was a teenager and had nowhere to go with it. And so Catholic. And I um, ended up meeting my husband at 16, marrying him at 18. I had three kids when I was an undergrad at Northwestern. So by 22, I had three children. And so I went to Kellogg wow. with three little babies, still unable to talk about desire, what was fun about it, why this was one of the richest territories of life. It took me so far into my 30s to be able to really do it. And still, I never had any conversations with any of my children around sexual pleasure, only the moose talk, as you put it, which is hilarious. <laughs> but now, with, um, my, one of my sons um, was my business partner for seven years in other ventures. And as Rosebud began growing, he um, said, you know, do you need some help? Would you like me to come over and be COO? And I was like, yeah, but you're working with your mom in a pussy cream company. Are you sure? (laughs) How do you feel about that? He goes, well, you know, let's try it for a while and see. And he, for Father's Day, he just wrote this um, post about two years as a man working in women's health with only other women on the team and being privy to all of the dialogues that we have. And he said, it's completely changed him as a man. It's completely changed his relationship to the women in his life or his friends um, and to his own sexuality and to the way that he engages with women. And when I read the letter, because we're going to put it out for our Father's Day blog post, I started crying. And um, both out of this, like this feeling that like, why, uh, for, what was it that stopped me as a mother from sitting down and sharing this really vital part of life with these beings that I love and whom I hope will avoid any pain that I had in those areas. And also to see the awareness that a young man would bring into, um, into his relationship just by being exposed to it and how, again, how secrecy and shame are the causes of so much unnecessary suffering to equally be able to have the dialogue with young men. So I feel very hopeful that we might uh, make a generational shift now that you are certainly seeding in part of and, um, that I hope. Yeah, I'm going to expand it out to talking with men um, as a result of his letter. Uh, we're, we're reaching out to the Good Men Project and other things like that. So I think men are very, very hungry uh, for information because they don't have the education either. And so we have a lot of men who come into the office and they just thank us. They're so, you would think that they may be uncomfortable because they're in a gynecology office. And no, they want to please their partners. They want to have a satisfying sex life. It's not just about them. And they ask just as many questions as their partners do. And these are my, you know, heterosexual couples. And I asked my 19 year old son, um, you know, about a month ago, um, he was joking with me and he was trying to get me to blush. And I said, Sean, you can say penis, you can say vagina. I mean, I do this all day long. Just try me, you know, and he was laughing. And I said, does it bother you? You know what I do? Does it embarrass you as a 19 year old boy? And he's like, No, mom, I'm so proud of you. And there wasn't a second of hesitation. So I think we're changing this upcoming generation. I think we're doing it. I think it's happening. And I'm extraordinarily hopeful as well. Wonderful. I'm so delighted to meet you you're just doing such great work in the world oh thank you and I was so delighted to meet your team and I this has been great it was so fun to meet you as well one of my um friends David Ewing Duncan pioneer in ecogenetics 
And, you know, they were puzzled why parents kept saying mercury is um, making my kids autistic or why they were, and the, and, and they were, all these studies were done on mercury and they were non-conclusion. They had no correlation. And they went back and ran all the data over um, kids with reported adverse reactions to mercury with their genetic markers and they found four genetic markers. And the more of those markers that you had, the higher the correlation was. And if you had all four of them, you had a three to five year developmental disability. And so you found that like the parents were right in their instinct that something had happened. And the ADA was right that the data didn't show it, but it was only because they didn't have enough mm-hmm. information. But with, with, you know, AI and the ability to search and look at that stuff, you'd think they would be doing that from the outset uh, with these, with these vaccine trials, like they would be looking for who's responding and who's not with genetic markers. I don't, you know, anyway, back to the, you're doing it in oncology. We're doing it. Yeah. We're doing it in oncology. We're doing it in psychiatry and sexual health care is going that way too, you know, to look at that. Let me ask you. Yeah, go ahead. Ask me anything. How did you get into this? Yeah, no, tell me how you did this. How did you, what happened with Rosebud? How did this happen? Dude, I was this thing I was telling you about all of my um, greatest unpleasantries of my life were around sex and sex and gender. Like I had all of the masculine capacity to run like the starship enterprise basically and the, the intelligence and, 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 but I had no, I had such complexity with my relationship to reproduction, to sexual health, um, to like morality. I'd like just all these weird overlays and, um, and so I lived a very masculine life. And then in my mid thirties, I sort of gotten uh, in touch with um, actively going after feminine relate, relating. My mother died when I was 11, so I didn't have her either. And I met a yoga oh. teacher who was doing like dance and yoga um, in a very feminine way, as opposed to like the power yoga thing. And, and she, right. this was like in 2004 and we're, I go to her teacher training um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm CMO of a, CEO of a company in Chicago, all these little kids at home and I'm training in yoga on the side, like to really be a teacher and to master it. I go to her training and we're undulating and she, and she teaches Abhyanga, which is a head to toe anointing practice. I touch all parts of my body every day, including my pussy and my asshole. And I'm like this little girl from Chicago who's like, she said asshole, you know, like I couldn't like grab onto the fact that someone could be so direct. And I was like, well, she's from California. Anyway, um, it started me on this whole pursuit of reading everything I could, studying Tantra, meditation, somatic embodiment, anything that would liberate me. And I began to make my own products on the side, like just learn how to do them in my kitchen. And I had all these other businesses. I had a consulting firm in San Francisco that was launching technologies and health and wellness. And then I, in 2016, I sold my business, another one of my businesses, I sold my home and I met a man we started traveling around the world and I couldn't get this study out of my head. So I commissioned a study of 3000 women and I asked them what their skincare needs were in, in the, um, in the greater vulva region. I was, you know, describing whatever women didn't know what that meant, but I had to read redo the survey. And so the study was really interesting. All the four products that we launched with were specifically at the top four concerns they had. And I knew that I wanted it to be like really um, organic and plant-based. I knew I wanted it to be beautiful so that it wasn't, that was something you could put on your nightstand and and look at because I wanted women to like dip in and like do the self-massage every night, get comfortable with their body parts, get um, also comfortable with their own sensation. Like what was happening? I, the, the thing that I diagrammed in the little book was about um, like these pressure points that I learned from an acupressure person about loosening up blood flow in the hips and like basically getting more mechanical blood flow. That's part of the massage when the topicals and the ingredients do the job they're supposed to do. And so I decided to do it. And once I made it go on it, everything aligned. Like the chemist was right down the street and he was doing like Paracone and he was doing like the most beautiful lines. My daughter was a professor at Parsons School of Design in New York. And her best friend was over to dinner when I was talking about trying to find someone on packaging design. And she goes, you know, I did, um, I did the number one beauty launch in the industry last year. I'd be happy to do your packaging. I won every award. And I was like, Okay, fantastic. So like every single thing 
I had done some consulting for Estee Lauder on new technology for them. And a woman who was running uh, product development for Estee Lauder called me a week after I decided to do it. And she said, I'm going, uh, I'm leaving Estee. I'm going to have a baby. I'm moving to California. Um, do you, are you doing, working on anything that I could collaborate with you on? I'm like, oh yeah, you can help me find factories and suppliers. Uh. So like, you know, I've done enough businesses it, it to scale and like understand how the moving parts work. This is the first time that I've done something that integrated all of my personal life challenges and discoveries with what I knew about building an enterprise or a business. And so it's been a super joyful journey. I'm then exposed to people like, like you, like what you're doing. And um, Barb Dupree, I just interviewed this uh, assistant professor from the University of Tennessee, Janine Anderson, who does Black Women in Sexual Health last week. Um, basically being exposed to a whole underground of women who are changing the industry and changing the conversation and like having no idea that that existed, which said a lot about mainstream medicine, you know, and the mainstream conversation. And mm-hmm. even like I had an interview with health magazine and prevention and in order for to get to edit through editorial review, whether they could run the story, it had to go through bo- three levels of editorial supervision and boards, which were mostly men. So they gave us a little test on their website, and it was the number one selling product in beauty on their website. And that was how, but they were like, oh, no, no, we can't have intimate care in our stores. And then they finally got it into the stores. But that all happened like re- relatively quickly. But I, I guess I've been in California too long because I thought things had changed and they really hadn't. So, I mean, they had, they were starting to change. I met a woman you might really enjoy, Dr. Jessica Drummond. She's an integrative wellness provider, does a lot of physical therapy, pelvic floor, but from a business perspective, she runs, all she does is train and certify pelvic floor coaches around the country. And I think nice. she's 3,000 coaches now. And so she's following a similar model, like do best practices, get the back end right, and, right. and then find the right uh, people. Like, like, it's not even like, it's, it's not even, just, it's like the right quality of being in these people. It's not just like the right skills or the right, but there's a quality that wants to really heal and serve. And is also clear-minded. And so she's very, um, she's been very good at the franchise expansion model. I think. I think. Anyway, that was a much longer story than you probably needed to hear. No, and I find it, you know, as a fellow entrepreneur and someone who's obviously, you know, been through this a lot longer than I am, I'm fascinated by stories, and I love finding how people have found their passion and their uh, business, you know, to meet. And I love meeting other women like you. And the same thing, I've met so many people along the way. Um, I thought I was by myself. And then, you know, I got to meet Cindy Ecker, who's the CEO of Sprout Pharmaceuticals and Jessica Shepard and Ruth Arumala and Dr. Burt and all of these people um, that are kind of saying no more and really changing women's health care as we know it, because it can't continue on like this for the for the next generation of women. It's it's dangerous and it's it's irresponsible and it, it just can't continue. I was really psyched yeah. got a in Arkansas because it was the 50th state. And I was like, the sea, the need exists everywhere. It's not just, you know, the liberal urban bastions who are going to do this. I was like, Arkansas, yes. Right. Um, you know, this is yeah. my first five companies were software, big subscription software technologies that um, made enterprises incrementally efficient. And so there was that and then <laughs> consulting one and so, somewhere in the middle, like I didn't want to do anything else on the planet that wasn't directly reducing suffering. And that was a maybe 2014, 2015. It was like, I fired every project and every client that wasn't directly involved in uh, reducing the pervasive undercurrent of suffering of all humans <laughs> throughout all time space. <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, at the mom. conference, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mom building, um, raising family and building companies and trying to be a decent citizen. And, you know, I'm 54 now. So there's like a sense of, uh, 
I thought I was going to retire and do this meditation retreat center in Hawaii. I'm never retiring. Like every time I stop, I just get like, more ideas. Oh, I want to live like this. I want to live like this forever. <laughs> oh my God. Um, you look amazing. And I'm not going to say for 54 because I, I always think that's a backhanded compliment. And um, no, it's great. What you're talking about that everybody knows the names of people coming in, that there's this sort of, I, when you were speaking, I had this sense of entering um, that red tent idea, you know, like of entering a space that is sacred for women. It's like the color of your walls, entering that, that space and being able to talk about all of it, you know, mm-hmm. um, can we talk about and that's- and that's and can we talk about that and can we talk about scarring and can I talk about I don't want to have sex with my husband because he's a dick you know like all of those things Mm -hmm. and and not feel shame so it's interesting that's exactly everyone who I consulted with said don't spend money on your space don't spend money on your space our space is beautiful granted I shopped on overstock and, you know, those companies, I hired an interior designer and I did it for a tenth of the cost because I was paying for it. And um, but people walk in and women are like, wait, sorry, I was looking for the doctor's office. And, and why do we think that? Because there's chandeliers and real furniture and real robes and, right. you know, there's soft lighting and not that fluorescent writing. They're like, oh, wait, I don't deserve this. And we're like, no, come on in. This is this is our office. And um, we have been uh, our accountants and our team has been looking at it. We have sustained growth of 15% going into year six every year. And that's um, looking at patient numbers. Um, And that's not the typical trajectory for a medical spot or a medical office. It's typically around three to 5% for a medical office. And we've been able to sustain that. Um, But yeah, no, that's one of my fears is making sure that we give this to the right people. Uh, You know, I'm not trying to create pop-up hormone shops. I really want to create these safe, empowering educational centers for women where nothing is um, off limits and they can come talk about everything in a very safe environment. I'm with you on the um, design. And, that, and that's so the goal. Beauty, beauty actually, I was just doing this piece on um, the gift of beauty and, and what it does to the to neuroregulation that basically the button so if you look at all the ratios in nature that are of a calm, natural system, lakes and forests and um, certain kinds of flowers, those, those ratios convey, um, those, those symmetries convey a sense of stability and safety. And the body reads stability, symmetry as, uh, as, as a place where you can relax. So when you walk into a space that feels that way. It's, it's color harmonized, like with a natural color harmonized palette, the space is balanced. Um, you know where they go, like your whole nervous system actually relaxes and you come into a greater capacity to be in communication. So people who ignore the sort of neuro subconscious cues of beauty are, are factually incorrect. And mm-hmm. so I think that's beautiful that you're doing it. And the other thing that comes to me is it's really rare. Like I do because I'm in the yoga world. I go to a lot of these festivals and where there are tents, tent environments for women to come out and talk about, but they have no medical expertise at all. And so it's super therapeutic and there's a lot of holism in there, but there's not sort of the scientific. Right. Uh, I love the idea that you could blend them both, you know, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With evidence-based medicine but still be able to talk about everything. Yeah, no, it's been lovely talking to you. Um, and I hope you have a safe trip and everything's fine back in California. I really do. Oh my God. Um, my boys so. are like serving water to the protesters and whatever they're doing and we'll move the warehouse oh. and we'll be fine. But um, I really am excited about this time. I really hope that people remember that those people in government work for them. And um, that we can see some really peaceful, beautiful, just changes. So that's what I'm about. I love talking to you and I'll see you in person in the fall. Yes. Perfect. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. 
The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world. So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day, no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. See you next time.